0: All right, so a couple weeks ago, I attempted an overview of Genesis um, in one lesson. I'll let you guys that were here be kind of determiners of if that was effective or not. But the goal for me, at least personally, is um, every other time or at least once a month or so that I speak, we'll do an, an overview of a book. And so this time it leads us to the book of Exodus. So the goal of this lesson is kind of twofold. One is simply just to kind of see the book of Exodus and how maybe it builds on what happened in Genesis and how it continues the promises of God throughout the Bible. Two also is to make and see maybe smaller applications that um, as Christians we have the gift and knowledge of hindsight and see some of the things that, we see God doing even way back then that we know to be true even for us today. So we're going to have some kind of personal application as we hit some points throughout. All right, so in the book of Genesis, we learn how the created world, physical things came into existence, and that was by this God, this creator, who spoke it into existence. Um, We also learn that He had an intent or purpose for the things He created. Each and every time He created something on one of the days He created, He observed it, He looked at it, and behold, it was exactly as He had wanted it to be, and He deemed it good. And so it had fulfilled its purpose. It was exactly like God wanted it to be. Unfortunately, it seems as if that didn't last for too long, because once Adam and Eve were created, uh, Satan, in the form of a certain serpent, offers them a temptation, offers specifically to Eve the temptation to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from which they weren't supposed to eat. And so Eve succumbs to that temptation, and then Adam does as well after her. And we see that they had broken God's intended purpose for them. And so that's really what sin is, right? God was the one who had determined purpose in his creation. And the breaking of that purpose was what sin was. And so we see Adam and Eve, in a sense, they fall from where they were before in this perfect relationship with God in the garden to being cast out of the garden. We see creation itself is shifted. It's cursed. We see their roles as human beings, in a sense, are shifted and cursed. We see even Satan himself and the serpent is cursed. And so from then on, we see God living Uh, out promises to people we see him making promises to Noah as he delivers him through the flood um, and brings judgment on the world we see him bringing Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 to a new land that he was going to show him and he delivers what we might call the three big promises to Abraham right where he offers him not only a land or a place to be that's one aspect of the promise. He offers them descendants or a nation that would come from him. And in fact, that nation would bear someone that would be a blessing to the whole world. And so those are kind of the three promises that are offered to Abraham and offered to each one of his sons. We see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob having that same promise reiterated to them throughout their lifetimes. And at the end of Genesis, we really see... um, Jacob's family all moved to Egypt because Joseph had risen to power there because of um, the ill and evil intent of his brothers that God had worked out for good, as we identify at the end of Genesis. So that brings us to the book of Exodus, which really picks up several hundred years after the events of Genesis. Um, God had even prophesied or said that it would be 400 years that the people of Israel the descendants of Abraham would be slaves to another nation when he would deliver them out. And so, according to Acts 7, 6 and 7, that's the amount of time that passes between Genesis and Exodus. Um, And even some other places, like Exodus 12, verses 40 and 41, Galatians 3, 15 and 17, indicate that um, perhaps it was close to 430 years. But we're talking about that 400-year range that has passed. And Israel's really grown. You remember the family of Jacob was about 70 people at the beginning of Exodus. It reminds us of that, right? Um, But it says in verse 7 of chapter 1 of Exodus, The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So, as best guess, probably a conservative guess, is Israel has reached a peak of about 600,000 men. So maybe double that for women and children perhaps, maybe even a little more. And that's how big this nation of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has grown into. And so they're living in the land of Egypt, and this poses a problem for Egypt because they see a nation growing within their nation. And so it says in verse 8 of chapter 1, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Remember, there were prior kings, specifically in Joseph's day, that revered Joseph for the relationship he had with God and the ability of God to work through Joseph in their lives. And so the Pharaoh had actually given Joseph a seat of position that was below no one else other than himself. And so time had passed to where, like all men, we tend to forget things in time. Generations came after that Pharaoh that no longer regarded Israel as to be revered for their relationship with the Lord. And I think with that, no longer revered the Lord himself. And so, look at verse 9, what his conclusion is, that he no longer fears Israel and Jehovah. He says, And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So the fear is, Israel is big, what happens if they kind of figure out their are big and they decide to join up with our enemies and overthrow us and get out of here? So the fear is one of flesh. It's one of you know, kingdoms and powers and men. But they don't really understand what they're really saying in this, it seems. And so the story of Exodus is how God works through this fear of the Egyptians to deliver his people out of the land of Egypt. And so that begins kind of the book of Exodus. And so there's a lot of really interesting stories. I know probably most of us in this room are fairly familiar with the book of Exodus. So these might not be new, shattering stories that you never heard, but they're amazing stories. They show God in ways that we really don't see him talked about as explicitly as we do in Exodus. I mean, we see the power of God in the book of Exodus probably more clearly and in more ways than perhaps we see it in any other book. We also see the deliverance. We see the faithfulness. We see what God intends for his people to be, even back in Exodus. And so there's some application we can make moving through the book. So in chapters 1 and 2, we're introduced to a man named Moses, who has kind of an odd upbringing. He's saved from death as a child due to Pharaoh's command to kill the the, the infants of the Israelites, the male children. And his, his mom has a fear for him, you know, wants to try to save his life, so she ends up sending him down the river in a basket, and he ends up being taken in by Pharaoh's family themselves. So he actually is raised um, as if he were royalty or as if he were Pharaoh's house, but he knew that he was not Egyptian. Um, And so you can imagine growing up kind of as an adopted son, um in a wealthy family, but knowing you're from the slave family on the other side of town. You know, I can't imagine what that would feel like, but that's kind of what Moses grew up knowing. And so, he grows up, and in chapter 2, we don't really have much time of him as a child, but we see that he's a baby, he's saved, and then in chapter 2, he's at least a young adult here. Um, And we see him, when he sees an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite and that conjures within him um, anger, frustration I imagine and he lashes out against the Egyptian and ultimately um, it seems as if he kills him um, almost it seems like an accident but he kills him nonetheless and Hebrews tells us that Moses supposed that his brethren the Israelites would understand that God was using him to deliver Israel from Egypt you don't get that out of the book of Exodus but in Hebrews we see that insight and so due to this, this killing of the Egyptian, Moses has to flee Egypt. He decides to flee. and um, This is where really the story of Moses takes a turn, I think if you've never read this story before, um, that you don't expect. So he ends up leaving royalty. He ends up leaving the world power of the day and going out to basically what we might equate to the country, to the sticks. He goes out into the middle of nowhere and he works as just a lowly shepherd. For 40 years he does that. He ends up marrying into a family and having kids and just starting a whole new life elsewhere. Um, and I think kind of a lesson we're going to see out of this is who God chooses to use. Um, sometimes we see God use who we might expect him to use. Kings, powerful people, prominent people. But other times he uses people who are ashamed. He uses people with kind of gritty pasts. He uses people that are nobodies. Um, and we see that kind of in Moses. And so, I want us to read um, verses 23 through 25 of chapter 2. I want us to read these here. 23 through 25? 23 through 25 of chapter 2. Alright, so during those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Alright. And to, to me, I think it's interesting here that the cry of the people from their slavery, their injustice, their mistreatment, not only is heard by God, but reminds him of something that he had vowed to do. I don't think the idea here is so much that he had forgotten his promise, but rather it kind of indicated to him, now's the time. Now's the time to do what I said I'm going to do. The people know where they are, and they know what I'm able to do. And I don't think it's a coincidence the next thing we see here in chapter 3 is God calling Moses to go back to Egypt to deliver the people. So I think that's a lesson for us. Uh, I don't know what kind of hardships we collectively might go through or on an individual level you might go through. But I think to me this says that God pays attention to when His people cry out to Him. And in fact, it will remind Him of promises He's made. And so there's one application for us. We need to cry out to God, and he, we know that He can hear us. But we also can t- rest assured if we know God's promises that he won't forget those. And so I think that's a lesson for us to even invest ourselves in the word of God so we can know what his promises are. I wonder if Israel knew the promise and that's why they cried out. They knew that, hey, it's about time for God to deliver us. Um, And so perhaps there's a lesson in that as well. That if we know God's promises, we can pray for those promises to be fulfilled. And so in chapter 3... Moses comes to this bush after chasing after um, a wandering member of his herd, it seems as if, Um, as the stories like to indicate in um, popular movies and things like that. But he, he comes across this burning bush. And what's odd about the bush is it's on fire, but it's not burning up. It's just kind of there, burning. And a voice comes to him. And it says, uh, Moses, Moses, in verse 4, and Moses just kind of says, here I am, right? Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off of your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey and to to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, And I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. All right, so God tells him that he's heard, tells Moses that he's heard the people's cry, and it's time to act. And in fact, Moses is going to be the hand which he acts through. Much like Joseph was 400 and some odd years before, Moses is going to be the man that Egypt sees God through. And so Moses immediately is like, I'm not the man for this task. I'm not the right guy for this. Um, and he seems to actually, the way that this conversation kind of unfolds, seems as if God's frustrated by that. Um, but God works with him here, and uh, he gives him his brother Aaron as a helper, as someone who would be able to work when Moses felt his weaknesses would hinder him. And so I think we learned a couple things out of this. I think, again, God uses people who we might not expect. You know, Moses apparently wasn't a very good speaker, but God used him anyway. Um, But also God is going to equip us with the things that we need to succeed. Um, And that's not to say when we have doubts and fears, God's going to cater to those. But that's to say that God is understanding and he knows our limitations. um, As he seems to indicate with Moses here. Um, He was willing to work with Moses in this moment of weakness on his end. And so, Moses is in fact given the ability to work some powerful signs and miracles among the people. And so, he's sent to Pharaoh. So, really in chapter 4, begins this back and forth between Moses and Pharaoh, which really should be viewed as a battle between um, Pharaoh and the Lord as Moses is kind of the Lord's hand in this. So we're going to skip, we're going to move a little more quickly throughout this next section. Um, Beginning in chapter 4, we see Moses go to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh doesn't really want to hear what he has to say. In fact, he counters Moses' signs and his message with his own sorcery and his own, um, I guess, employees of his that he felt or the equivalent of Moses, if not greater. And so, in chapter 5, the result of the first confrontation of Moses and these, uh, this Pharaoh and his sorcerers, is Israel gets burdened with more work. Um, doesn't that seem like an odd response? If you're expecting God to show up, and you're seeing, you're seeing this story unfold for the first time, you're thinking, man, Moses is going to go to Pharaoh, and it's going to be worked out immediately. There's no way Pharaoh is going to be able to resist what's happening. But so Moses shows up, gives the signs that God had given him to give, and Pharaoh responds with his own signs, it seems, with his own reasoning, and in fact makes things worse for Israel. That is not what I expect to happen when I read this story. Um, And to me, that says um, a couple things. One is that people are going to resist the message of God. That's true for all time. We see that not only in Exodus. We saw that in Genesis. We're going to see that as we move throughout the Bible. People always resist God's message. And sometimes even to the effect of what seems like failure. I mean, if Moses gave up here, if the story... um, if Moses gave up and the Israelites gave up and everyone stopped paying attention to God and God um, worked it, would have to work it through another way, it would seem like failure, wouldn't it? I mean, if Moses just left and God wasn't able to overcome Pharaoh, we'd be like, well, what happened here? But that's not the end of the story. Moses is able to then go back to God and God says, yeah, I knew this was going to happen, more or less. Um, in fact, God informs Moses for the next several attempts that Pharaoh's going to reject it. Um, and I think that was as much... I mean, I think there was many folds to this, but I think, and I wonder sometimes, if the failures um, that Moses encountered, and I put failures in quotations here, failures that Moses encountered dealing with Pharaoh weren't for Moses himself in some ways. Um, and so I think a lesson I learned out of all these attempts of Moses of going to Pharaoh and not seeing any results... Is that we have to be persistent uh, when God gives us a task. Uh, you know, I think of so many stories out of the Bible and so many things from my own life that didn't bear fruit immediately, but I knew God wanted me to do them. You know, maybe when we reach out to friends or family with the gospel, we don't see anything for a long time. But we know that's what God wants us to do, so we keep at it and we keep going. And, you know, eventually, God provides something us and that's kind of what I see in Moses here. God's providing deliverance for the people. We know it's going to happen and we know that's what he wants but it took some persistence Um, and in fact it's that persistence that really as we stand here studying Exodus is really the opportunity God shows his power. Um, Without these failed attempts we wouldn't have seen all the powers of God. We wouldn't have seen the plagues. We wouldn't have seen the power that he holds and so we move forward Moses continues to go before Pharaoh chapter 7 he begins telling Pharaoh all right if you don't from God if you don't let the people come out of Egypt then I'm going to send plagues on you and so the first one ends up being the the Nile River was turned into blood water was turned into blood and that doesn't do it. So a second plague comes, and God sends frogs on the whole land. Well, that doesn't seem to phase uh, Pharaoh very much. And so the third plague comes, where God sends flies or gnats. I guess kind of the idea there, all over the land, right? He sends it all, everywhere on the land. Well, Pharaoh doesn't really doesn't seem to bother him. I don't know why these gnats being all over land doesn't bother him but so the next one is uh flies the fourth plague is flies the fifth plague and this is where we start to see a little bit of a shift is all the egyptian livestock dies um we see in chapter nine the lord said to moses verse one go into pharaoh and say to him thus says the lord the god of the hebrews let my people go that they may serve me same command right for if you refuse to let them go and so hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon the livestock there in the field. Horses, donkeys, camels, the herds, and the flocks. And we see that he makes a distinction between Israel, Israel's flocks and Egyptian flocks, which he had been doing the whole all through the plagues. Well, that doesn't seem to do anything. It just says Pharaoh's heart was hardened in verse 7, so he sends boils. Same thing. He sends hail for the seventh plague. And this is where we see things shift a little bit. Verse in, or chapter 9, verse 27. After the hail came, Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses wins. Right? Well, if we stopped there, we might think that, but we end up finding out Pharaoh didn't really mean what he said. Um, have you guys ever done that? Kind of say something in the moment because something good or really, something really good or really bad happened that you didn't really mean? Or you thought something like that? I do that all the time. Um, and I, so I can kind of relate to Pharaoh in this. Um, I hope I'm not like Pharaoh in the same kind of capacity of what he's doing. Um... But to me, this says, you know, it seems like Pharaoh's repenting and even changes his ways. He says, we're in the wrong. and In fact, I'm going to let you go. Um, but we learn that Pharaoh changes his mind. Um, after the hail ceases in verse 33, it says in verse 34, Pharaoh saw the rain and healed, the hail and thunder had ceased. He sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And so... I learned a lesson in this that if I'm ever see a need for repentance in my life I don't want to be like Pharaoh I don't want to feel repentant and sorry for my sin and the moment that affliction or consequences of that sin go away go right back in to doing what was wrong again um I think true repentance as contrasted to Pharaoh would have been longevity in that repentance um A true turning away wouldn't have meant as soon as a heavy hand isn't on me for that anymore. I go right back to it. Um, And so we see Pharaoh's repentance is half-hearted. It's not true. And so pressing on, he continues with plagues. We have locusts in chapter 10. We see darkness in chapter 10 at the end there. And then we have kind of where where we'll wrap up here fairly soon um, with Exodus in chapter 11 the final plague is threatened and this is the ultimate plague that God brings upon Israel I mean upon Egypt he promises to kill the firstborn of all the land of Egypt um, if they're not allowed to leave this really is a huge theme for the rest of the Bible We saw it even in Genesis with Abraham and his son Isaac. The death of the firstborn is a huge blow to consider in your life. Your son, your firstborn son, means so much to you, um, not only for your heritage, but for your family, for who you are, for your legacy. Uh, And so for the Egyptians to consider having lost every firstborn in the land, whether of animal or man, would be a huge blow. And God lays that upon them and says this is going to happen if you don't let my people go well the hardness of Pharaoh's heart refuses to heed the warning and so God tells the Israelites hey anyone who puts lamb's blood on the doorpost tonight will not have their son taken away from them will not have their firstborn killed off and so the Israelites heed God's call um, and so ultimately Pharaoh loses his son the rest of Egypt loses their sons anyone who does not heed the warning of the Lord with the blood on the doorpost and this really begins a huge idea consistent theme in the Bible of not only the, the firstborn and what all that means to God and to people um, but also this idea of blood being um the substitute or the redemption of a life. Um, we see that all through the Bible. And really, this is, as it seems, to be the biggest, the first and the clearest picture of that in the Bible. Um, to me, at least. And so, God shows us here in chapter 12, He talks about the Passover, where from for, for every generation that the Israelites come after this, that they're to remember this moment where God spared their firstborn, that's one part of the remembrance, spared their lives, put judgment on their enemies by taking their lives, and delivered them out of the land. So it's kind of a threefold judgment here and remembrance that they're supposed to have. And so... In chapter 12, it has the details of what all they're supposed to do with that and how they're supposed to plunder the Egyptians as they leave the land and all these other things. But for us, what do we see in this? I think we see really a f- perfect physical representation of how God saves his people, always. This is how he operates. Um, now, in Jesus Christ, we have a spiritual salvation. We have a perfected and complete salvation but it comes in the model that we're shown in exodus it comes with blood that causes a passover in a sense a redemption of life we also see that jesus christ's death also brings a judgment on those who do not conform to that death um those who in a sense don't put blood on their doorposts if they don't conform to jesus's death um But then we also see that Jesus comes as a deliverer. He pulls us out of something. He not only saves us, but he changes us. We see many passages in the New Testament that talk about that. Ephesians is a book that talks a lot about that. Your life before you were changed versus your life after you were changed. John talks about it in the context of light and dark. You were in darkness, you were brought into light. So walk in the light. Right? And so Exodus really is the form or the mold for which God shows us how he'll continue to operate, how he saves and judges and delivers. Um, and so Exodus shows us that completely. Um, if you want to skip ahead a good bit to chapter 15, I think this is an appropriate response to deliverance. After Israel's saved, after Egypt is judged, After they're delivered, they cross the Red Sea, through which the New Testament tells us that was their baptism, their type of baptism, right? And they cross the Red Sea. In chapter 15, Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, and if you go through and read this song, it's a song of exaltation to the Lord. It's just praise for the judgment, the deliverance, and the salvation that he's provided them. And I feel like the application for this is pretty obvious. When God does that for us, our natural response should be just like Moses, to be able to sing songs of praise to him for the judgment, the salvation, and the deliverance he's given us. Um, And so one question we might need to ask ourselves are, are we like Moses and the people of Israel in Exodus 15? Are we really thankful for what God has done for us through Jesus Christ? It's a question that we each need to consider every day. So God continues to provide for the people. He leads them, trying to take them to the promised land. He provides all these various instructions and miracles accompanied uh, with those instructions. For instance, in chapter 15 at the end, um, they encounter water that was undrinkable, and God makes it drinkable. He makes it sweet by just throwing a branch into it that he instructs Moses to do. Um look at verse 25. It says, "There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there He tested them." And so really this period of coming out of the land of Egypt, there was a sequence of commandments and tests that they went through. You know, God, after He saves His people, he doesn't just leave them to wander around wherever. He's leading you somewhere. just as He led the people from Egypt, not just out of Egypt, but to the land that He had promised them with commandments and miracles and tests. God does the same thing with us. God leads us out of darkness, not just to be anywhere we want to be, but into light, walking in the light. And how does he do that? Well, he teaches us about himself by giving us statues and commands, and then he tests us. He lets us go through trial so that we can prove ourselves true to him. So we continue to see the parallels of Exodus, right? God has always been the same in how he brings his people to himself. Exodus chapter 19 shows us what he desires, what characteristics he desires in his people. Exodus chapter 19 says, um, in verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. If that seems familiar from Exodus, that's good. It's also quoted as being true of Christians in 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter says the same thing. Christians are, as it says here, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Again, God continues what was literally true for Israel. They were going to be these things is absolutely spiritually true for what God has provided for us in Jesus Christ. And so again, as he leads the people out of Egypt, he shows them what he wants them to be. He leads them there, lets them prove themselves true just as he does with us today. Um, And so Exodus really is a great story, not just of fantastic power and crazy journeys and seeing God work through things. It's really a story or a shadow of what he's doing for us. I mean, if you've ever read Exodus in light of, hey, this was a type of what he really wanted to do for me, how much more powerful is it to go and read 1 Peter, or go and read the Gospels? And Exodus is just an image of what he's already doing for you, um, and really not the other way around. Um, to me, that's, that speaks a whole lot um, about God and about us. All right, so skip to the very end of the book. Um, In the middle section here is a lot of commands that the Lord gives um, from the top of Mount Sinai through Moses to the people. Um, And I really want us to focus on chapter 32 just for a second, and then we'll wrap up the book of Exodus. Um, So God has judged Egypt. He's remembered his promises. The key to the Bible is the promises of God. He remembered his promises, so he delivered And saved Israel while judging Egypt. He passed them through the Red Sea on the way to the promised land. Well, Israel bumps into some hiccups along the way. God's faithful. He has promises. He delivers completely and perfectly. But Israel doesn't. Israel doesn't always pass the tests that the Lord lets them pass through. So I feel like the clearest example of that perhaps is in Exodus 32. Moses is on the Mount Sinai receiving the commandments for the Lord. And while he's up there, the people are down at the bottom of the mountain making sure not to touch it so they don't die. But they have a golden calf made. They, they take their jewelry and the things that they plundered from the Egyptians and turn it into like this, this calf that they could see and that they could worship. And so I think an application for us, and this was obviously wrong, when Moses came down from the mountain, he sees this, I think in shock and anger, he drops the tablets that God had given him and they break. And he gets on to the people and it's a whole big mess. Um, but an application for us is, I think, twofold. One is we don't need to be sh- short-sighted and we don't need to succumb to the temptations and things that attack us as we're trying to be led by the Lord as they were led by the, the cloud and the smoke. But also... We don't need to take the things that God has provided us and misuse them. You know, they had, they had the jewelry because they plundered the Egyptians through God's salvation. But they melted the jewelry down and used it to make an idol. And so in a similar way, we can take the things that God has provided for us and his salvation or his deliverance for us, and we misuse them. Paul, for instance, talks about that somewhat in Romans, how we can misuse or abuse grace because God has provided for, the, for us that way through salvation. But we can misuse that. He says, do we need to keep on sinning just because we have grace? Well, no. So to me, kind of a parallel to that for us is, what are you misusing that God has given you um, for a good reason that he's blessed you with through deliverance or salvation that we can kind of like the golden calf change and abuse? And so that's, that's a lesson I feel that we can learn as we study Exodus. So the, the book of Exodus actually wraps up all the way in chapter 40. Um, God gives these commandments um, through Moses. And in chapter 40, the tabernacle or the tent where God is going to dwell as they wander and as uh, the people move around is created and made and I guess as your heading might say is erected, it's built up and so Exodus ends with this image of God literally dwelling again with the people that he saved and that's how the book ends he saved and delivered these people and now he has a place to be with them and really if we view Exodus kind of as a microcosm or a all-in-one kind of picture of really the, the gospel that's what God desires in us, right? At the end, after he's saved us and after he's delivered us, we don't build a tent, but some passages say that God dwells in us. We are the temple. And then we also see images in the future where we dwell with God in his city. And so that's kind of what Exodus shows us at the very end. A delivered people, a saved people, God chooses to live with those people. Um, and so that's where Exodus wraps up. Hopefully I know uh, running through a book like that is a lot of material and it can be maybe a little dull because maybe you know the stories and things like that and it's just kind of repeating those things but hopefully maybe looking at it that way, looking at it from a Christian's standpoint going back through Exodus and really Exodus is the story of the gospel manifested to Israel. um, That can be helpful for you in seeing application and thinking those things through. So uh, that's all I had to say this morning. Hopefully, you. if there's anyone here that needs prayers or anything like that, certainly this group is willing to pray for you and help you in that way. Um, I guess Richard can lead us um, in our final song at this point.